Welcome to the Media Sport Podcast Series, available on both SoundCloud and Apple iTunes. I'm your host, Brett Hutchins, from the School of Media, Film and Journalism at Monash University in Melbourne, Australia. This is the second of my interviews conducted while attending the 8th International Summit on Communication and Sport in Charlotte, North Carolina in the US. At this moment, I'm sitting with Thomas P. Oates, Assistant Professor of American Studies in the College of Liberal Arts and Sciences at the University of Iowa. Tom's research interests sit at the intersection of sport, media and culture, focusing on how new media and new neoliberalism are shaping articulations of race, gender and sexuality in contemporary sport. Among other topics, I'll be speaking with him today about two new books published in 2015, Playing to Win, Sports, Video Games and the Culture of Play, co-edited by Robert Allen Brookie and Tom and published by Indiana University Press. And the NFL, Critical and Cultural Perspectives, co-edited by Tom and Zach Furness and published by Temple University Press, an impressive book that I've only recently come across. It's fair to say Tom has been pretty busy given that both of these collections were published this year. Tom, congratulations on the new books and thanks for taking the time out to chat with me. Thanks, nice to be here. I'd like to begin with a question that will be of interest to listeners living outside the United States. Um, Could you explain what American studies is or are? American Studies is an interdisciplinary field um, drawing from uh, literature, history, um, anthropology, and other fields, uh, which explores uh, American culture um, in in general terms. Uh, A lot of American Studies scholars like myself are interested in popular culture, um, and uh, there's been a recent move in the field to sort of... um, think beyond the borders of the United States. Okay, interesting. Now, because Australia has, of course, its own brand of Australian studies, which yeah. is a highly contested term. So. Yeah, uh, there, there's an interesting history to American studies in the United States as well, um, and some involvement by the U.S. government back in the, in the Cold War era, um, as a, using the discipline, or the field rather, as a way to um, spread goodwill about the... About the uh, nation and its people. Fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of the conference we're both attending, you were part of a plenary session titled 40 Years of Mythic Spectacle. What was the session about and what was your role in it? Well, uh, Michael Reel's article, um, The Super Bowl Mythic S- Spectacle, was published in the 1975 uh, uh, issue of uh, the Journal of Communication. It was one of the very first pieces to take sport seriously. Um, and to explore the intersection between sport and media. Um, He examines the 1975 Super Bowl, um, which, as most of your listeners will probably know, is not just a game but also a major television event drawing uh, record audiences in the United States. This last year it drew yet another uh, record audience of more than 114 million viewers. Um, And Riel uh, was interested in... Uh, the the whole scope of the Super Bowl on television, so the pregame programming, the postgame programming, the halftime entertainment, uh, the advertising, um, and he discovered a number of uh, important themes relating to sport and media that scholars have since picked up and explored in much greater detail. So it's a very influential essay. It's one that I still assign to undergraduate students, even though it is uh, 40 years old this year. Um, 
Uh, it's relatively short. I think it clocks in at about 12 pages. Um, but in those 12 pages uh, really suggests a lot of interesting avenues for study. Uh, so it was an important piece in that respect. It uh, kind of broke new ground in sport and media, especially in the United States. Um, and uh, so uh, Dr. Real was in town for the plenary and uh, uh, gave his own presentation about his uh, understanding of the piece and um, what he thinks the future of sport media scholarship might look like. So uh, it, was, it was great to meet him in person. It was the first time I had done that. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. And you were part of a panel that's responded to his presentation? Uh, yeah. <clears throat> and also we, had been, we were prompted to think about um, uh, what the influence of the work had been on the field and also to think about what directions the field might be going from here. And your, um, your new collection on the, the National Football, Football League, the NFL, um, how did, I suppose, what's its relationship to that essay and, and what's that, that, that collection trying to do? Well, it, it builds on a lot of the themes that uh, Dr. Real lays out in the book. He um, discusses, for example, the interdependence of television and, and sport, uh, which is a theme that many of the authors in our collection take up. Um, one of the other things that I find particularly useful about um, the Super Bowl mythic spectacle is that it's one of the very rare early pieces of sport media scholarship that focuses attention um, on a single sporting formation rather than sports generally. Um, and uh, that's something that I think is increasingly important as uh, sports organizations and institutions like the NFL, the NBA, the uh, WTA, the WNBA, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, aggressively um, market themselves not only as sport but also as a distinctive kind of sport, as a, a sport that um, has particular kinds of values attached to it, um, is promoted in particular ways as well. And so that's what we were trying to do with the collection um, as well, was to draw attention in the same way uh, that Reels essay did to a single sporting formation, the NFL, and to examine various features of, of its work in, our, uh, in the cultural life of the United States and beyond the borders of the United States as well. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a really fascinating collection. Um, you know, there's militarism, Mm -hmm. um, sex, violence. Um, <laughs> I mean, the bit I really liked about it is that I think it, you know, it, as I said, I've only recently um, seen it, but it really picks up on that critical perspective that was evident mm -hmm. in, in Real's essay. It, it, I mean, in sort of planning the project with Zach, was that what you were, what were you actually aiming to do? Well, w yes, that was, uh, yeah, I think you put it very well. We were interested in issuing a kind of critical response to um, this very prominent feature of um, American culture and American media culture. Um, and particularly, we were interested in responding to the culture of conservatism that uh, the NFL um, continually reproduces in its presentations of the league um, and, of course, in the presentations that its media partners um, help to disseminate. Help to disseminate. So um, 
uh, it was very much on our mind, and we do make this uh, we make this point in the introduction that uh, the collection is an unabashedly leftist approach to a, a response to the NFL, um, and uh, a, a, there has been a long tendency in uh, American scholarship, in particular, to um, view the NFL as relatively uninteresting um, and straightforward because it is this sort of uh, important reservoir where conservative values are uh, continually refreshed and reproduced. But in that refreshment, I think there's a lot of um, uh, important adjustments that um, uh, those who wish to oppose the kind of politics of sexism, racism, homophobia, um, and... uh, uh, media concentration um, need to attend to in order to uh, issue a forceful response. And so the the book is an attempt to um, take a step in that direction. And have you, uh, so two very sh- brief follow-up questions there. Have you had a, any informal or formal response from the NFL? And also, are you a, do you follow or watch or are you a fan of the NFL? Uh, the NFL has not responded. Um, I don't expect that they will. I think they'll just hope that it disappears into, <laughs> into the stacks somewhere and, and no one ever reads it again, But um, <clears throat> which may happen, who knows. But uh, as far as myself and my relationship with the NFL, I, I, I'm, a, I'm a very avid sports fan myself, um, and I have lots of interests as a spectator. Uh, but... And I, I suppose a lot of people would say that I am an NFL fan in the sense that I watch NFL games. Um, uh, I know something about the league. Um, I, I study it pretty closely, so um, I attend to it as an object of study. Uh, but living in the United States, um, there's lots and lots of opportunities to... Uh, commune with other people around around sport and football is of course one of those uh, one of those occasions um, so uh, I watch football but um, I find it difficult to uh, invest as a fan in quite the same way that I do in some other sports okay, that's so. int- yeah it's, I mean I think it's an ongoing issue for a lot of people who study yeah or, anything, you know, any element of popular culture, mm. they're often invested in it for, for reasons that have to do with their biography or their autobiography, but at, at the same level of re- requiring that critical distance. Yeah, well, I think this is one of the very important elements of sport is that um, is to recognize that not only is it this sort of powerful repository for all kinds of uh, values about the culture uh, that people occupy, but it's also... Uh, a source of interpersonal connections. There's a lot of deep personal relationships that are um, built around sport, where sport has a really important role to play. Um, uh, going to baseball games with a parent or a child. Um, uh, I, my um, partner and I, uh, uh, sort of solidified our relationship around our shared interest in uh, the St. Louis Cardinals baseball team and spent many of our first dates together at Cardinal games. She's also an avid Cardinal fan as I am. So, um, so I'm sensitive to that. Um, 
reality that uh, sport is not just a uh, a political tool um, as well as a tool of pleasure. It is also something on which people's real relationships and lives are are uh, deeply invested in, and so there's a um, so there's that element of sport too, which I think is very important to to recognize. Okay. Look, moving through to um, the other collection, Playing to Win, um, in your words, or the words of yourself and your Mm co-editor, it studies the points of convergence between video games and sports. I suppose the obvious question, what are the points of convergence between the two and what are you trying to tell the reader and connecting them or Mm -hmm. or identifying those points? Mm -hmm. Well, uh, the the project originated... um, because my colleague um, Rob Brookie and I were working together at Northern Illinois University and he was teaching a course on video games. He had written another book, Hollywood Gamers, about uh, uh, the convergence between video gaming, video gaming and um, the movie industry. And uh, uh, he had a number of students in that course who were interested in pursuing topics in sport and in trying to direct them to scholarship on sport and video games, he found that there was very, very little uh, to draw on. Um, And uh, so that got him thinking that it might be a good idea to fill that gap in the literature. Um, And he approached me about it. I thought that that sounded like a great idea. Um, And actually, in the process of this book being produced, another book was uh, produced as well on sport and video games. So now we have at least two collections on the subject, which is which is good, um, and a lot more work appearing in journals recently um, as well on the topic. So that's uh, so it's a it's a burgeoning area of interest. So one of the first points of convergence between video games and sport is this. Um, uh, the emergence of the game Pong in the early 1970s, uh, which is a sort of uh, primitive simulation of ping pong, um, uh, sort of passed almost without notice at this uh, very early example of a of a successful, maybe the first example in the United States anyway, of a of a successful video game um, was also a sports video game. Um, and of course, as uh, there were barriers, technological barriers to the development of uh, uh, sports video games that could be um, convincing simulations of games like football. Um, and s- some of the your listeners may have played uh, the Atari Twenty Six Hundred system, which um, you remember was a very kind of uh, primitive simulation. You had to use your imagination to. <laughs> it was cutting edge at the time. <laughs> it was. It was. We were happy to have it, but it was. Uh, but it was um, uh, nothing like the uh, uh, the sophisticated, uh, very realistic simulations we have today. Um, so there were these technological barriers for a long time, but that did not stop video game developers from the. Uh, very early days to um, work at uh, simulating these uh, sporting activities. Um, today, the, these uh, two industries, broadly sport and video gaming, um, have some really deep uh, relationships with one another and with sport media. So one example that I can think of is um, 
uh, EA Sports, uh, a, a division of Electronic Arts, which has a relationship with uh, ESPN, the sports broadcaster ESPN, um, part of a multi-year deal, an agreement to integrate brands. Um, and if you uh, watch ESPN, you can see this at work when um, uh, an upcoming big game will be previewed with uh, simulations from the officially licensed game. So, for example, if there's a uh, an upcoming uh, game in the NFL, um, EA Sports will provide a simulation for uh, of that game um, uh, through its Madden NFL franchise, uh, and the commentators on ESPN will then remark upon this simulation as some sort of prognostication of what's about to happen. Um, afterwards, uh, often there are uh, video gaming elements as well in the post-game analysis. Um, and then, of course, in the game itself, in Madden NFL itself, uh, ESPN personalities appear on screen to uh, uh, preview the games that the gamer is about to, to play and so on. Um, and, of course, the licenses that... Um, EA Sports uh, has obtained for the NFL are very valuable property um, uh, and uh, very expensive as well. So uh, this is a, a really deep uh, financial investment um, that these sort of three wings of um, uh, the sport media complex have uh, combined to make at this point. Um, so the convergence is really deep at this point, but uh, I think that in some ways you can trace it back to the uh, early 1970s when arcade games really sort of emerge on the scene. And the other, I mean, the other really nice part of the collection is that, I mean, just as per the example you've just used, you know, the hyper-masculine context of the NFL is a really welcome focus on gender in the collection. Mm -hmm. um, why did you... You know, wh why that focus and how have you gone about sort of covering the different dimensions mm -hmm. of gender? Well, I think it grows out of both uh, Rob Brookie's and, and my own interest in, in gender generally. Uh, but that sort of grew organically from uh, the works that uh, the contributors submitted. Uh, we, of course, invited people who we thought would uh share some of our interests in um, sport and video gaming. And so um, it wasn't surprising that that theme came to the fore, but we, uh, uh, we, we wanted to highlight uh, this particular aspect of, of video gaming because, of course, it's a, um, it's a vital aspect of video gaming generally um, and issues of, I, I think, a lot of the scholarship on... Uh, race and sport, or uh, sorry, race and video games and gender in video games, especially that work done by Lisa Nakamura and others, um, uh, has been very influential uh, in my own work for sure, um, and my own thinking. And I was very happy to see um, this focus um, uh, delivered with respect to sport, because of course sport is itself a sort of um, sphere of quite problematic um, depictions of gender. Um, and uh, so the, that convergence we were interested in studying as well. Excellent. And um, 
do you play? I know it sort of it's, it cycles back on. I suppose our first yeah. round of questions. Do you actually play video games? Uh, I not as much anymore. I I have a a young child at home, so <laughs> uh, so I try to limit my uh, media use in the living room as much as I can. But um, uh, but before she um, came around, um, I would I was a pretty avid uh, uh, FIFA soccer player. Um, okay. So. Um, had done many, many simulated seasons in that in that sphere, and I was very. That was one of the ways in which I got um, interested in video games um, and sport fandom. That sort of intersection as well, because uh, this is the early two thousands, and um, uh, access to soccer on television um, was sporadic and difficult to find. Um, but I, I, I had. A real interest in pursuing this um, passion I had for soccer. I would always uh, get sucked into the World Cup completely, um, uh, and then uh, once that tournament ended, it kind of fell off the radar in all kinds of ways. Uh, and the video game FIFA was a uh, an important way that I learned about the game, learned about the structure of the leagues, um, learned you know, about the uh, the stadia that the teams play in. Um, they even simulate uh, chants and songs that fans sing. So by the time uh, soccer became uh, more widely available in the United States and I was able to start watching closely, um, I, I, there were many elements of the game that were already recognizable to me from, from the video games. And I think that that's not unusual that... Um, especially with soccer, but um, with some other sports as well, perhaps, that um, fans are introduced to the game uh, in an important way by, um, by video games. Absolutely. Uh, I refuse to play FIFA soccer anymore because my son regularly beats me nine yeah. ten often. <laughs> um, <laughs> now, there's been a, a quite a, a significant um, legal case running in the mm. U.S., um, the O'Bannon versus NCAA case mm-hmm. in relation to US college sport um, revolving around intellectual property rights in video mm-hmm. games. What, what was it... St- I mean, I, I think it's really an important case for a lot of listeners, particularly beyond the US, to be mm-hmm. aware of. What, what was at issue in that, that case? So I think the first thing to explain is that um, uh, college sports in the United States have a commercialized element that is unusual in most of the rest of the world. Um, And they also have a um, commitment to amateurism, this idea that the uh, athletes um, who draw the eyeballs of millions of viewers every um, basketball and football season uh, and line the pockets of their coaches with millions of dollars in salary are themselves merely student athletes who are not um, compensated beyond um, a, a scholarship and uh, uh, other costs of attendance. Uh, so that's in the background. Um, Ed O'Bannon was a uh, star player at UCLA, University of California, Los Angeles, which um, has a very um, traditionally powerful uh, uh, men's basketball program, um, and uh, was he was actually the um, 
named the most outstanding player of the 1995 NCAA tournament when UCLA won the national championship. Um, many years later, uh, O'Bannon was um, introduced to a video game uh, by a friend um, and recognized that uh, there was an avatar of that was clearly him, uh, wore his same number, uh, shot left-handed as uh, O'Bannon did, had many of his same moves, etc. Um, and O'Bannon, who had had a short career in the NBA, but at this point was on to other things, um, recognized that uh, EA Sports and the NCAA were um, uh, making lots of money on this uh, partnership without compensating any of the athletes whose likenesses uh, helped to market the game. So uh, O'Bannon uh, filed a lawsuit against the NCAA. Uh, he um, uh, organized a class action suit involving uh, many former players uh, to, uh, uh, to pursue this. Um, and the ruling that uh, eventually came down uh, is likely to transform uh, college sports in some pretty fundamental ways. Uh, the ruling stated that um, it limited compensation, for one thing, uh, to um, uh, players from the past. Um, EA Sports uh, and, NC and the NCAA ended their partnership um, and uh, the video game, some of the video games that were in question um, ended production. Uh, but the real sort of ongoing legacy of this case is um, that the judge ruled that there were uh, certain that, that schools could not cap compensation for athletes at the cost of attendance. So they were able, should they choose to, um, to provide compensation for uh, for college athletes. Now this created a huge issue for the NCAA uh, because of course the NCAA has this long-standing um, uh, commitment to amateurism um, and to uh, restricting players from receiving any compensation above the cost of attendance. Um, the, the ruling will not actually go into effect until the summer of 2016, um, but it seems pretty clear that the major conferences um, uh, in the United States are likely to uh, compensate athletes um, at, at some level. It's not going to be millions of dollars, but it will be a, a, a some level of financial compensation. So this marks the very first time um, that that bridge has been crossed by uh, by the NCAA and it has you know profound implications for what might happen in the future um, and it's all due in part I mean this was unleashed uh, by this um, by this video game and this deep cooperation between uh, the NCAA and EA sports um, to profit off athletes not just in the present but also, um, those from the past. I should mention that O'Bannon's uh, O'Bannon appeared on the game um, as part of a kind of um, legends team. So uh, in in the NCAA college basketball game, you could play not only with um, teams 
uh, from the present. So if you were a fan of the University of Louisville, for example, you could play with the uh, current team, uh, although they wouldn't be named, but it was clear who was who. Uh, but they would also have great teams from the past. So uh, when Louisville won the national title in 1986, if you wanted to play with that team and uh, put them up against uh, the North Carolina team from 1982, you could do that. Um, uh, and so that's how O'Bannon discovered his avatar in the game. Yeah, liberalism is a, a concept that runs throughout your writing. It's also a, a contested and contentious term mm-hmm. in, in, in some quarters, at least. I mean, mm-hmm. How has your understanding and use of the term changed over time? Mm-hmm. Well, my um, interest in neoliberalism uh, started as a, a, an interest in not simply a set of economic relationships, but a uh, the way in which they organize subjectivity, the way in which these set of relationships um, uh, help to encourage new subjects um, to imagine themselves uh, motivated towards new goals, um, uh, imagining new forms of social danger, um, imagining especially uh, new forms, although not entirely new, uh, forms of uh, uh, racial and gendered relationships. Um, so I was interested in, in, in neoliberalism as a, as a kind of, um, as a cultural concept rather than as an economic concept. Um, but I've, uh, recently begin, begun to, um, move away from using the term itself because I, I feel like the term has become oversaturated with, um, uh, competing meanings uh, to the point where it is uh, less and less useful uh, as 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 a way of explaining that interest. Um, I think in, in in some respects neoliberalism is the new postmodernism in that in that way, um, a term that uh, once uh, and can be made to um, describe something quite particular, um, but which has been used to describe so many other uh, related and sometimes even unrelated aspects uh, that the term itself uh, leads the reader in all kinds of different directions um, in ways that aren't helpful for the uh, for conveying what the writer's interested in, in conveying. So um, I'm still very interested in those concepts. Uh, but I've I've uh, recently um, tried to reel in my own use of the term um, in the interest of of clarity. Mm. I suppose just as a, a way of finishing up, what are you what are you working on at the moment? Or what? I mean, you've just finished two books. I'm not expecting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, well, but what's next? What can we look forward to? I have a uh, a solo authored manuscript which is um, currently under review. Um, and that book is about, it's a um, feminist critique of the NFL and media culture. So that book is about um, the uh, ways in which the NFL is represented through <clears throat> a range of media. I have a chapter that deals with fictional, fictionalized depictions of football in um, television and film. I have a chapter that deals with gaming. Uh, video gaming and internet gaming fantasy leagues. 
um, for those who know what those are. And then um, I have a chapter on sort of off-season uh, coverage of the league, uh, are focused around the uh, NFL draft, which is a complicated process by which the league uh, introduces new talent. Um, and then um, I have a chapter about uh, uh, books written by NFL coaches, um, which roughly fit into the category of self-help or organizational theory. Um, my interest in these texts um, is to, first of all, point to the myriad of ways that the NFL has sort of saturated media culture beyond just the game itself and uh, coverage of games themselves, um, uh, but also uh, to point attention to this um, to the constructions of masculinity and especially the very conflicted um, and I think complicated ways in which masculinity is um, being composed and recomposed around um, uh, professional football. I think that football uh, in the 21st century is this very important cultural space where um, a lot of the contradictions of masculinity are being worked out. Um, race is, of course, an, a major feature here as well, um, as are issues of sexuality and um, shifting economic relationships, um, which are bringing about um, uh, new forms of uh, racialized and gendered relationships as well. Um, so the book's about those themes. Um, and that's my major focus at the moment. Um, not surprisingly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, look, I really look forward to reading it when it eventually comes out. Uh, Tom, I just thank you for taking the time out to chat with me, and uh, hopefully at some point in the future we'll get you again on for the Media Sport Podcast series. Thanks, Brett.